Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Start, Scale and Disrupt. I'll be joined in a moment by Paul Lewis Warman, the founder and CEO of productivity app MeToo. Uh, Paul has a fantastic background and built a software company called Simbox to a turnover of 10 million pounds before exiting and deciding to start all over again. So we talk a bit about the mindset that led him to do that and why he wants this kind of new challenge and to, to build another company. Uh, we also go into his recent successful crowdfunding raise, how to think about your own network if you're going into that process, the kind of target you should set for the raise. Uh, and we also talk a bit about the role of uh, a non-technical founder in, in a business and kind of how you can make sure that the, the coding and the, the products are of the right kind of quality. Uh, and finally, about management itself. So, you know, whether you, the degree to which you're involved with the details and how to kind of work on that personal development side of the business. So thanks for joining us. As always, tweet me at Business Zone if you have any comments or feedback or if there's anybody in particular you'd like to see on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dave Paul. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's great to have you and I appreciate you writing for Business Zone as well. Um, I think something that maybe isn't immediately obvious from your profile is that you did have a, a sort of 10-year journey with a previous tech business which you eventually sold your stake from. So I thought it'd be really interesting just to start there and kind of find out a bit about you know, what that business did. Yeah, sure. Um, my previous business was a business process management software business. So we sold software that enabled people to uh, digitize their business processes. And this was back in 2004 that we launched our first product. And you have to consider it was a very, very different world back then. It was before SaaS, it was before virtualization. And so the concept we had was very unique, though it may seem quaint now, which was to package your software onto a server and sell the whole lot as an appliance. And people were doing that in the infrastructure world, Nokia with uh, a security appliance, but nobody was doing it with business software. We thought, well, the whole point of business software is the business uses it. And what gets in the way is all the setting up of the databases and the operating system before you can start using it. So we thought we'd take all of that away and make it easy. And we were the first people in the market to have a business process management appliance. It started as a, a help desk appliance and uh, it was a very different paradigm, as I say, it seems odd now, but it did set us in very good stead for the emergence of SaaS and the emergence of virtualized computing, because of course, all the admin of our device was done through a web browser from day one, so the, the transition was, was very good indeed. Right, a happy coincidence? or, a, or uh, a I would like to say happen? it was my incredible foresight, but I'd probably be slightly bending the truth to say that. <laughs> And I thought it was quite interesting that, that you um, you grew that business organically as opposed to kind of meet to, which we'll go on to in a minute, that you sort of crowdfunded very early on in the, in the business's evolution. So I just wondered if you could talk about the, 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 the funding for the original business and kind of how that might have impacted its growth. Well, back in 2004, when we launched that first product, the, the UK funding scene certainly was very different to it is now, uh, predominantly because of the, the lack of SaaS. SaaS didn't exist, so there wasn't that sort of appetite and experience of having invested in and having seen the success of all these SaaS businesses that we're all sort of using in our lives these days. And so if you wanted to have a software business, you had to be selling uh, relative to today's numbers, but relatively small numbers of very big sales. And I remember being told that, uh, that much by an angel back then. You know, I think we were looking at selling, my dream back then was to sell um, hundreds of these or thousands of these appliances at you know two to five thousand pounds each, and then this guy 
sitting in front of our business plan and saying, no, 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 what you need to be doing is you need to be a £120,000 sale and you need to be loading this sale with uh, consultancy. And so it, it was a very different model to, to we have today. You asked about um, the funding side of things. Well, uh, we didn't manage to get funded. And I think one of the things that probably limited the growth of that business, uh, I mean, it did grow and, you know, still in operation, turns over about £10 million pounds a year, something like that. Um, but one of the limiting things is that it didn't receive funding. And I think a business can really suffer in many ways from not being funded properly. And that's something that uh, I want to avoid with uh, my latest startup, Meetup. It's a very different type of business, and deliberately so. I've aimed it to be something that doesn't require a consultative sale. It's something that grows, it's an app, it has a viral potential. So, very different beast. Right. And, and you, you obviously exited that business. So, I, I just wonder sort of what kind of excites you about being at a slightly different stage in the business evolution. So you've gone from running a, a company with sort of 14 years experience and 10 million plus turnover to, to starting really from scratch. I mean, how does that feel as an entrepreneur? Well, I suppose I'm someone that has kind of terminally itchy feet to some extent. And I don't particularly enjoy the day-to-day -day kind of operational stuff. Once it's sort of developed and it's done, I'm, I'm thinking about the next thing. I'm always looking and thinking about opportunities and, and the way things work. and. I've been in and out of business meetings my whole life and it uh, became a bugbear of mine, the amount of time that was wasted in the meeting. And so a few years ago I started thinking to myself, why am I wandering into meetings with you know three LinkedIn profiles up on my browser? But surely there's got to be a better way of doing this. Can't I bring together my calendar where I've got the email addresses with the LinkedIn profiles and can't I attach my notes to the calendar in some way? And so I went looking for an app to do it. There was nothing there. And I couldn't believe there was nothing that did this effectively. And so I thought, well, there's an opportunity there to create something. This kind of ate away at me for a while. And I thought, well, I've really got to get out there and do it. And so I had an opportunity to sell my half of uh, the business. And I did so at the end of um, 2015. So I was exited early 2016. And I started Me Do. It's interesting, that expression that the idea kind of ate away from you. <laughs> Coming up, I think a lot of entrepreneurs say that, you know, if you, you can't forget an idea, if you can't not stop thinking about it and you have to go and pursue it and it's one of maybe the valuable signs of value of an idea. Yeah, well I suppose it's, it's a sign of the sort of obsession that entrepreneurs probably have with the ideas that they, they do have and, uh, and which is an important thing because there's going to be plenty of people that will tell you that it's a daft idea and that it's, uh, it won't work and, but I suppose that's as an entrepreneur what you have to do, you have to sort of overcome that, uh, that uh, sort of uh, opinions of people that maybe don't see the world the way you do. And funnily enough, with, with me too, everyone tells me it's a really good idea, so maybe I should be suspicious of that. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And then, so let's go on to the crowdfunding then. So you completed, uh, I think it was £150,000? Yeah, so we went for the SEIS amount uh, for funding in uh, December uh, of last year. Okay, and, and kind of how did you, how does that figure into the business's plan and how did you decide to kind of raise that, that much? Well, there are two reasons I did crowdfunding, the obvious one to raise some money and maybe the not so obvious one which is to raise the profile of Meetzoo and what we were doing and to get some investors that would be invested not just financially but emotionally in the product. Basically we have 120 investors so that's 120 evangelists to go out there and speak about the product and it also when you're starting a new business if people are prepared to invest in it it's a great sort of validation of your idea you know that you're not uh, some sort of mad scientist beavering away at something the world doesn't need. This is 120 people say, yeah, we agree the world does need this. 
Okay, well, on that network, I mean, you mentioned a point when we were sort of chatting before before we hit record about kind of how you value the network that you have. I was just wondering if you say something around that and sort of planning the raise and any advice you can give on that front for, for other entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think, I mean, crowdfunding is a great vehicle. It really is a great uh, thing that we have at our disposal now. It wasn't there before. Um, but I think you need to go into it with your eyes open about what you can achieve and what you can achieve is very much based upon the value of your network and what I mean by that is it's not a question of build this crowdfunding campaign and they'll come it, it doesn't work like that you have to bring your own crowd and then the rest of the crowd join in people want to I think the expression is people want to jump on a moving train no one wants to push to start a stationary train and so you have to develop a certain amount of momentum for when your campaign launches by having enough investment and therefore you have to be quite smart about how you set your target and how you um, you approach that and how you market the campaign. Right, and a lot of people will say that you know you, you expect to have sort of at least 40% of it lined up or potential investors lined up before you hit live on, on a crowdfunding platform. I mean, what's your view on that? Do you have a sort of rough yardstick in terms of how much you ha wanted to line up beforehand? Um, well, I'm sure there are people with far better access to the real stats behind this. Mine is obviously my own experience, those of people who went through that journey at a similar time to me. 40%, um, depending, like most statistics, it depends how you read them. Um, if you look at the end of a campaign and say how much of the, the campaign was raised by that person's network, then 40% might be about right, certainly in my experience. Um, of course, you have to ask the question, is that number of investors or is that amount raised? That's you know, another, another question there. I think in terms of how much should you target your campaign to and therefore how much of that target do you need your network to have, I think the answer is as much as possible. You need to have a network that is contributing a sufficient amount so that when you come out of the gate and go public with that campaign, it looks like a really significantly moving train. So, I mean, to give you an example, if you wanted to raise £100,000 and you looked at your network and you were confident you could raise £40,000 out of that network, you would probably be better advised to build a business plan around a target of 50000 and so you came out of the gate 80% funded rather than a target of 100000 where you're coming out of the gate 40% funded yeah. because people looking through the the lists of investments on Crowdkeep or Cedars, whatever the platform you've chosen, an 80% funded early campaigns are much more attractive than a 40% funded one. Right, and then you can overfund. Absolutely, you overfund, of course. Yeah. Okay, and then moving forward, so the, the app's uh, just gone live, I understand, and I just kind of wondered, you know, what, what's your plan for this crucial kind of next 12 months when you're, you're going to have to grow? I mean. Uh, particularly in terms of the product market fit, establishing that and how you might iterate over this kind of really busy period after the launch. I mean, have you got any kind of philosophies or thinking on that ahead of, ahead of that period? Well, I think, I mean, my job at the moment is, I suppose, twofold. Uh, one is to push the product ahead, and that means keeping the product exciting, keeping the momentum behind the releases, releasing new features like we are with our Shake to Meet, like we are with our cloud storage and our CRM integration, those sort of things. And at the same time is looking ahead to our next round of investment because companies need investment to grow. That's one of the key things. It's, um, they're not going to grow without it. 
in the environment got to that is because it costs money to market products and it costs money to develop reliable, good, exciting, sexy features, which is what you need. And you have to get to that sort of critical mass to be able to do that. And so uh, our journey over the next six months is going to be to build our user base, which will involve, as you said, establishing that product market fit, listening to our users, putting new features out there, changing the ones they don't like, improving the ones that they do like, and at the same time talking to that uh, um, venture capital or private equity community to say, look at the exciting stuff we're doing. We're starting on this journey now. Meet us at the end of it in six months' time for that next round. Brilliant. And when you wrote for, for Business Zone, you, you talked a bit about being a non-technical founder. Um, so it would be, be great to kind of get the... First of all, an understanding of your permission, your your position, sorry, on that front, and any any advice you had around that for for other people that need to bring um, uh, coders and developers onto a team to build a product. Yeah, well, I, I did get picked up on that by someone on your uh, website, but probably quite rightly so. It was probably uh, incorrect of me to say I'm a non-technical founder because I did start my life as a, as a computer programmer and I've worked with development teams my whole life. What I meant by that was rather than being the person who's ringing the code out um, you sort of have that responsibility handed over to someone else be it someone that you've employed or someone that's outsourced and that's quite a, a, a different challenge and of course a, an even more uh, different challenge if you've uh, no technical experience at all because you have to put all of your faith in that person uh, for me I have quite a lot of technical experience in fact a huge amount of technical experience in coding and working with development teams but that in itself can be a bit of a double-edged sword because um, one of the key things as I said before is maintaining momentum and when you have a technical background as I do one of the things you have to avoid and I'm very bad at avoiding it if I'm honest is sticking my nose in and asking <laughs> questions and why are we doing this and shouldn't we do that and if you're not careful you can slow down the rate of progress and I think one of the key things is you need to be quick and good, not slow and perfect. And this comes around to the whole sort of lean startup methodology, which I am a big fan of, and I think is is vital um, way to adopt things. And in fact, that whole methodology kind of goes back to my university training, where I studied physics. It's, it's a scientific approach. You put forward a, a hypothesis or a theory for something, or i.e., a minimum viable product of some some description, and then you go out and you validate whether that is true right, in terms of the product people want it and if they don't then you try and tweak what was right about it you try and change what was wrong about it and if it's completely a terrible idea then you go in a different direction and that's and you just have to iterate this as quickly as possible uh, go back to that point about your own sort of stance as a manager though I mean how do you personally how have you been able to develop those skills that ability to step back a little bit and, and kind of trust the, the team I mean is there any sort of practical steps to do that is that just kind of being more self-aware self-awareness there's a high degree of lip biting which is required to do it uh, and I think like anything it's being aware of your own shortcomings in that area I mean some people are just naturally great uh, leaders and encouragers of people and uh, and I wouldn't say I'm particularly great from an operational point of view because I will tend to digress and pull people away into the details so I have to watch myself but I don't do that you know I have to be particularly um, keep a hawk eye on myself to, to make sure that uh, we're heading in the right direction. So I think the thing is, and this comes back to another piece of uh, advice I was given and uh, stuck to, which is employ people. Don't try and do stuff yourself. And the most empowering thing you can have 
is great people working in your business. And your job as a business owner and a startup uh, owner is to give people the right environment, the right tools. They can do a great job for you, not you doing a great job for them. You know, your, your job, the, the contract is you provide them with a great environment, salary, rewards, whatever. And in return, they give you the, um, the fantastic skills they've got. Don't be the smartest person in your, your organisation, is my, my advice. Employ the smart people. Brilliant. And it, thinking about somebody that doesn't have that kind of, I mean, you have a technical background in that you, you ran a, a very technical orientated business yeah. and you coded some time ago, um, but you, you aren't sitting there writing out lines of code. So, I mean, what would you say to the complete layman that doesn't have that technical background in terms of the kind of types of flags that they can look out for or, or ways that they can check the quality if they are paying somebody else to code or perhaps even somebody in a different country? I mean, what, what quality assurance can you, can you go through as a founder that's not coding yourself? Well, I would say there's a couple of things that you can do. Um, the key thing, of course, is the choice of partner. You, you work with software, uh, partly work with. There are some great companies in the UK, there's some fantastic ones here in the Southwest. We've got Simple Web uh, here in Bristol, we've got uh, Rocket Makers in Bath, we have a Concept in uh, Exeter. So we've got some really good companies that will even, in the right circumstances, take an equity stake in, uh, in your business and they have a huge amount of experience in building products quickly and in working with entrepreneurs, which, if we're honest, are not necessarily the easiest people to work with. So finding that kind of company and working with them is would be a fantastic recipe for success, I believe. Another thing you can do is um, maybe split your development and your testing between two different companies. So you have one company do your testing and one company do your development, because then they're kind of checking each other's homework, uh, so to speak. Um, and another thing would be to have a mentor or find a mentor that is uh, giving you some technical architecture advice and kind of keeping you on the straight and narrow and keeping those guys sort of focused in the right area. I think that's something you can do if you don't have a technical background. And there are plenty of incubators where you can get that, that kind of advice. Right, and you mentioned being in the, the Southwest there. I mean, how has it been in, in, in terms of recruitment and what, what do you think of kind of the development of, of this area? You know, we're, we're obviously based in Bristol and we've kind of seen all these the new incubators opening and the kind of a, the scenes, it's what feels like the genesis of quite a strong scene in, in the city. I mean, how's, how's your experience been? I think Bristol has an incredible set of features. I've always felt, you know, for as long as I've known the city and I've lived in the area for 15 years, you know, in the in southwest that is, I've always felt that Bristol's had a really amazing blend of technology and the arts and in a relatively small area. Sort of the, the centre of Bristol is, is kind of not far off the, the size of Shoreditch or Clerkenwell in, in London, you know, where we've got sort of Silicon Roundabout. So uh, we've had the similar kind of focus and a similar kind of vibe going on, but very much with this blend of technology and arts. And I think that's a very good thing for technology people to be amongst artistic people with other influences as well. So I think that makes um, the environment more interesting and it makes the kind of uh, solutions you develop more um uh, more generic and more applicable to, to larger numbers of people. Great, and, and just finally, I mean, what can we expect from, from Mitsu over the next sort of few years and what are your kind of long-term aims for the business? Well, our long-term financial aim is that we'd like to get 800,000 paying subscribers, people on our premium model, by the end of year four. So that's sort of going into 2020, um, which is 
very doable given our sort of viral growth potential. Um, our shorter term goals are, as you said, to to get that product market fit right, um, and we won't get the supercharged growth we need, of course, just staying in the UK. We will at some point have to open a US office, I'd say sooner rather than later, and that's one of the things that we'll be looking in future rounds to do. It's uh, very easy to sort of think that you can uh, rule the world from, from the UK, and, I, and I'd like that to be the case, but the reality is uh, you have to move into the largest markets, and you see this with uh, companies from all over the world, a lot of Israeli companies, for example, set up in, uh, in the US and incorporate businesses there. Um, in order to spread out from that large English-speaking base. I think there are also some amazing opportunities in uh, Asia, uh, in well, certainly in India and in uh, the, the Chinese and sort of Pacific Rim market, and to look at solutions uh, for those emerging technology markets and emerging business markets. There are some incredible technologies there, things like WeChat in uh, China, which is being used for everything from personal communications to uh, business communications to purchasing to just every, every element of people's personal business lives. So I think the canvas of the world as it stands today is, is a very exciting place to be in somewhere where I think Mitsu uh, can be a, a name on everyone's lips, I would like to, like to think, you know, one of those in the same way that Trello and Slack are. Brilliant. Great point to leave it there. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. My pleasure. Thanks.